We're going to do something a little different today. Um, Anne Robinson and I began talking about doing Martin Luther King Day together. Um, oh, gosh, a couple months ago, I think you were the instigator, Ricky. And unfortunately, she can't be here today, but she suggested rather than looking at racism out there that we look at it in here at in Loudoun County. And so I have been uh, 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 doing a research project, I guess I would say, um, online, talking to people in the church, talking to people outside the church about their experience and their knowledge of racism right here where we are, uh, and also getting a, a, a historical overview. So the sermon is shorter, but we have, we have quite a few readings, and I, I hope that I've timed it right. We may go a little late, and if you need to go, if you need to go downstairs and tell the RE that we're a little late, uh, we, we will understand. Uh, I also I want to dedicate this service to Valerie McNeil, who was uh, just a stalwart person for justice, at uh, the First Church of Baltimore, who died unexpectedly of uh, a stroke, a series of strokes, really. And uh, she, she stood by us, uh, African-American woman, and, and she, she, but she was for justice for everybody. She was down in Annapolis with us, um, and I think that she would like to be remembered today. The story of race relations right here in Loudoun County is a powerful story, one that reminds us of the long road we have traveled in this country and this county, and yet also reminds us of how far we still have to go, both in the country and here in the county. Let's begin with a look at the glacial pace of integration in the schools. Our first reading is from a 2013 series by reporter Danielle Nadler in Leesburg today. Nadler wrote, Loudoun was once a county deeply resistant to change, and John said that may still be true. I don't know. You can talk to me about that after church. As far back as 1846, residents voted down the creation of a free public school system for fear that the classrooms would be open to blacks. 1846. So black families built one-room schoolhouses for their children in the middle of the 1860s. It wasn't until 1884 that the first large school for blacks opened in Leesburg, later called the Loudoun County Training School. And even that school was not supported locally by taxes, but financed by the federal government in the wake of the Civil War. The first thing Frank Watkins will tell you about that school, which he attended, uh, 41 years later, is that he had some of the county's best teachers, but he also remembers the stark difference in almost every aspect of his school and the all-white school just a few hundred yards south on Wirt Street, which operates today as the Leesburg Senior Center. Oh, you know the difference. We didn't have nice school supplies or a nice building like the other kids, Watkins said. In 1925, it cost $29.27 a year 
to educate a white child a year, and $9.81 to educate a black child. Although the county started busing white schools to students to school that same year, the black community was still organizing carpools to get their children to class. The training school students were also limited in what route they could walk to school. Watkins explained that the white school was up on Word Street and they didn't want us to go up that way to even come in contact with the white kids. Please join us in singing the first verse of We're Gonna Sit at the Welcome Table. uh, You can remain seated, number 407. some excerpts from several sources describing desegregation in Loudoun in the 1960s. Unless noted, most of the information comes from that series that I just mentioned in the Leesburg Today. Eugene Schell and the online history of civil rights in Loudoun tells us at the dawn of the 1960s, Loudoun County had more than twice the percentage of blacks, 18% of the county's 24,549 Residents, just think of where we are today, um, than it has today. So it had more than twice uh, the percentage of blacks as it has today, which is, it's, it's now about 10% of the population. But the, how large is the population? 351,000. 351,000. There's been a little bit of growth <laughs> since the 1960s. Yet that county, like much of the South at the time, was far more racially divided. Other than a few churches where blacks worshipped with whites, the only apparently integrated facility was the public library in Purcellville. Schools were completely segregated thanks to a resolution passed unanimously by the Board of Supervisors in 1956 that vowed to withhold money from integrated schools. You will note that is, what, uh, just two years after Brown versus Board of Education. There were no restaurants for blacks. The few that had served blacks, including Leesburg's Do Drop In, were closed. In April 1961, activists, student activists from Howard visited Leesburg and were refused service at a lunch counter. By word of mouth and phone, the local black community contacted blacks across the county. On April 24th, nearly one-tenth of Loudoun's black population gathered at Leesburg's Douglas High School. In response, a disturbed Mayor George Babson called upon B. Powell Harrison, chair of the Racial Study Commission of the Episcopal Diocese of Virginia. Harrison recalled Babson's words. Powell, we have an emergency here in Leesburg. 400 Negroes have voted to have a sit-in in Leesburg this Saturday. The NAACP in Washington is involved. They plan to send six busloads of Negroes to Leesburg on Saturday. 
They will join the local Negroes in a demonstration downtown, followed by sit-ins. They will sit there until served. Harrison, a Leesburg native who knew the town well and was active in many community programs, wrote, We had assumed that ours was a town of true harmony. It was a shocking revelation that in dear Leesburg, whites were totally ignorant of the unhappiness and deep resentment stirring. So a delegation of whites and blacks came together to meet with four pharmacy owners the day before the planned demo. Pharmacist William Bodmer immediately startled 15 by stating in Harrison's words, I've been serving Negroes whenever they've come into my drugstore for something like two years. I've never had one white person complain. The ice had been broken. The other druggists agreed to open their lunch counters to everyone. I recently asked Barber, one of the two group members still living, why there was such a concentration on lunch counters. He answered, most of us were only making 75 or 80 cents an hour, and all we could afford to spend on lunch was 25 or 30 cents. Leesburg Today also reported on the sluggish pace of school integration during those years. The Supreme Court in Brown versus Board of Education had announced the end of segregated schools in 1954. But nine years later, no Loudoun school had been integrated. As I recall, that opinion said they should be integrated or de desegregated with all deliberate speed. Nine years, okay. At that time, the all-white Loudoun Valley High School in Purcellville allowed just 10 of the very brightest black students who applied to enroll, 10. One of them went on to be salutatorian of her class. The Loudoun County High School was even more cautious, admitting, this is integration now, one student in 1964, 10 years after Brown versus Board of Education. Gertrude Evans shared her memory in Leesburg today of one of the famous protests that she participated in in the mid-1960s. Her brother was the leader of a group of 15 to 12 or 15 teens who led a series of protests. Gert was the youngest sister. She was very nervous about these protests, but her brother egged her on. Now they decided to integrate Leesburg's fireman's pool. How many know about, how many of you know about the fireman's pool? Okay, all right. That was an ordeal. One hot summer day with 50 cents in hand in our bathing suits, about eight of us went to gain access. Of course, I was lagging behind, so I didn't even get to the counter. Whew. I couldn't swim. I couldn't even figure out what I would do if they did let us in that day. That week, we protested every day for about a week or more. When it was time for the carnival that summer, we protested and had a party every night in someone's backyard. We had a ball, picketing in the day and partying at night. Now, mind you, the NAACP was working behind the scenes, and eventually the firemen closed the pool. During our protest marches, some of the firemen were not very nice to us. I remember one of them throwing a bottle or a can at us. A suit was filed on their behalf, and the court ruled in their favor, but the pool remained closed, and the firemen ultimately 
filled it in with rock and cement rather than integrate. Leesburg didn't have a public school until 1990. Public pool. Pu it didn't have a public swimming pool until 1990. In May 2009, when another new public pool opened in Ida Lee Park, members of Gert's family took the first rides down the new water slide as part of the official opening. In 1967, talented football and basketball players were admitted to the two schools. That same year, a federal court ordered Loudoun school officials to integrate its schools on both pupil and staff levels no later than the 1968-69 school year. The next year, all the county students finally attended school together. Douglas High School was closed, and Frederick Douglass Elementary School reopened as an integrated school. In the past decade, Loudoun has become one of Virginia's most racially diverse counties, with the most recent U.S. Census reporting that close to 50% of the population is made up of Hispanic, Indian, Asian, or black residents, 50%. The student body at Parkview High School in Sterling alone represents 80 different countries. Would you join now in the second verse of We're Going to Sit at the Welcome Table? We conclude with several personal stories of experiences of African Americans living in Loudoun in the 21st century. We could not include all of them, I'm sorry to say. The first is an excerpt from several stories shared with us by a local parent, with some identifying details changed to assure anonymity. Six years ago, my son had problems with his, with his third grade teacher at a local elementary school. He was the only African-American child in the classroom. I went to a parent-teacher conference to see how my son was progressing. The teacher showed me a standardized test he took in which he was reading on a fifth grade level in the third grade. She gave him a C in English and justified it by saying he couldn't possibly comprehend at the, fourth, at the fifth grade level. I asked for his classroom work to gauge his progress. All of his papers had to see, but I couldn't find an error. I asked her kindly to review the, the papers again, as I had a background in English, having taught journalism as a grad student at Iowa State University. Of course, she got a little heated. I stood my ground and asked for an explanation. Needless to say, in this teacher's eyes, my son could not do a thing right. I asked that they move my son out of her class. We eventually had a meeting with the superintendent of elementary education, the principal, the teacher, and another teacher. My father told me that they would stack the deck to intimidate us. That's an old trick. 
So I asked for the assistance of the NAACP when we were called to attend this meeting. Three representatives from the NAACP showed up. Needless to say, the school administrators knew all three of them and were shocked I had them sit in on the meeting. My son was moved. They didn't want to do it. I kept mentioning that I would sue for all that harassment that took place. But they did it. Now, member Ann Robinson, who has been very active on behalf of the poor and involved in the struggle for justice for local African-American people, shared some of her own experiences and thoughts. I've changed some of the identifying uh, details. This is what she wrote. In recent years, I particularly remember two meetings with two African-American friends in public places. Both were professionals, lovely people, who've been active in the NAACP and in the struggle for justice and equality. In both instances, employees nearby whom I chatted with every time I'd previously come in suddenly became cold and distant. One hasn't spoken to me since. One of my friends told me the other person had always refused to serve her many years ago. She added that this was the first time she'd come back. I'm glad we're here, Anne's friend said. She also wrote, earlier this decade, a front-page article with photographs appeared in a local newspaper reporting the outstanding accomplishments of an African-American female Loudoun High School track star. Reading the article online revealed hate-filled and vicious racial comments below the article. Anne writes, what must she have thought and felt? What must her parents have thought and felt? Supportive allies in such a way, situation who come forth with positive comments are invaluable. Debbie Cooper, our Director of Religious Education, and her husband Joe have adopted a son from Ethiopia. I've asked them if they would share some of their experiences with us. Thanks. I'm a liberal. I hope people who know me would say I work really hard at being kind and generous to others. My profession has allowed me to work in and make friends with people who live in some of the poorest and most dangerous neighborhoods in the country. Um, last fall, I was felt more comfortable in East Little Rock or on the wrong side of the river in New Orleans than I did here. Um, I'm the father of a black child who may be my favorite human on the earth. Also, I am racist. I didn't realize it until after Nick joined our family we say his brother grew in mommy's belly and Nick grew in her heart. When parenting a white boy and a black boy, you begin to see a subtle differences in how they're treated, like the school's reaction to learning difficulties. We chalked it up to the differences in their personalities and their different skill sets. I didn't think it was possible that a beloved teacher or family friend would treat Nick differently because of his skin. But they do, and they don't know it. We spent years walking away from teacher meetings, gatherings, and events wondering why someone said this 
or did that, not really being able to figure it out. Nick loves football. He loves all sports, but lives for football. Last summer, his team won the championship. Nick wasn't the best player on the team, but he was good. We would go to practice, and the coach would run plays for him at tailback. He's really quick. We'd go home and practice the plays, and then on Saturday, we'd watch Nick stand on the sideline for pretty much the entire game. They had a boy on that team with some physical disabilities who got more playing time than Nick did. The first game, it was strange. Again, we chalked it up to probably something Nick said or did at practice. So we practiced at home some more. But the second game was uncomfortable. You could tell the other parents and coaches were feeling it as well. That's when I knew it. I knew from a feeling deep inside that's hard to describe, but it was parent intuition and it was true. All this time, all those strange situations, we were so naive. We thought we could raise a child of color and give him a nice home, a good education, good friends and family, a good community, and he wouldn't suffer from discrimination. It's 2015 after all. I felt sick for days after that. I could not believe it. I don't think that football coach attends weekly clan meetings. I think Nick probably did something that triggered the situation and the coach saw a little black boy that caused it. I don't even think the coach knew it was racial. It's biological, it's ingrained, it's in me too, and probably you. Thankfully, as a parent, it doesn't seem to be there when dealing with a child. I couldn't get in the head of Nick's coach, so I did my own navel-gazing. And in every situation I was in, I then reimagined how, how it would have gone down if the white person was brown or the brown person was white. And there were differences. Sometimes they worked in the favor of the African-American, but there were differences. And the point was they were unintended. A few months after that football game, the incidents in Ferguson and Staten Island happened. And I realize that I'm going to have to parent a young black man soon, and that terrifies me. I have talked to my African-American friends after the football incident, and they confirmed that feeling, the one I have trouble describing, and said to get used to it. It will come more often. And their concern was that Nick didn't have a black parent who knows how to deal with it. So that's something we're going to have to deal with now. I won't ramble about the media hip-hop exploitation, fear-mongering politics, and local news. Everyone has their own theories, and many may be more right than mine. I think it works because it triggers some primal tribal wiring that was once a survival instinct. We all have it, and it affects everyone in some way. If it happened to me, it's frightening to think what it could do to someone who does not have as much exposure to people of color. The fact that I didn't see it until recently in me means that it may never be recognized by most people. I don't have a solution other than to tell my story, so thank you for listening to it. One story that was hopeful and that Deb was going to share, she spoke, was a few years ago Nick was playing with one of his little friends whose mom later told us that she didn't like Nick's braids because they made him look too black. And we had a computer-generated self-portrait of Nick on the refrigerator. Nick's friend stopped and asked, who's that? Nick said it was him. And the little boy said, well, why'd you make yourself brown? And Nick looked back at him and says, well, I am brown. 
And the little boy did like a cartoonish, almost, double take. He just then, after years of playing together, realized that they were of a different color. He sat there and stared at Nick for a minute. Nick broke the silence. He says, well, you're pink. (laughs) And they both ran off to play football. Thanks. Thanks for sharing that. Let's sing verse 3. We're going to sit at the welcome table. No fancy stall at the welcome table. No fancy stall at the welcome table. One of these days, hallelujah. No fancy stall at the welcome table. Twenty fifteen. Can you believe it? <laughs> All of us here in this room have different memories of race in America. So how have things changed? How about here in dear Loudoun County? What do we really know firsthand about the injustices that persist, about the meanness, about how we feel in ways we don't, we as religious liberals may not even really be conscious of? How can I How can you, how can we help? Many of us didn't grow up here. We're focusing on here, so there is much that we may not know. Even if we did grow up here, there would be much we don't know. The dailiness of racism for those of a different skin color or hair texture, that's what I don't think I can ever really understand feel in my gut. But I invite you to join with me this morning in struggling with the difficult issues of race that affect us, all of us, and in which in some ways are part of all of our daily experience, whatever color we are, whatever culture we are. It seems to me, a white woman who lived during the 1960s, went to high school during the 1960s, and college that in some ways the name-calling, the beatings, and yes, the deaths of civil rights workers have caused huge changes in our country. The laws have changed. If much de facto segregation remains, even on Sunday mornings, still lunch counters, dressing rooms and department stores, seating and movie theaters, washrooms, drinking fountains, and voting booths are largely available to all of us. Those are huge changes. All is not well, however. Some casual, what I call casual racism, still exists. Many, maybe most of us, lead such segregated lives that those of us who are white don't see it, or perhaps we don't notice it, except when we read about it in the paper even though it is there to be seen. 
On the one hand, there is hope. The president of the local NAACP reports that the NAACP has a relationship with the police, a pretty decent one. They work together when problems arise. Still, we do not know that police violence could not happen here in a setting where no one from the NAACP, no one who cared, might be present to stop it before it happens. Worse, there is a shockingly large and disproportionate number of African-American men. I'll say men because we focus on men. I'm not certain what the statistics are for African-American women. I suspect that it is skewed. Does anyone know? Um, it's, and that disproportionate number is, is caused in part by discriminatory drug laws that treat crack cocaine and the punishment different from powder cocaine and the punishment. Mutual fear exists between black men and police officers mixed with prejudice and too often, as we all know, this has had tragic results for African Americans. The public education in our schools, where the majority of the students, where the majority of the students are African American, often remains poor. The heritage of housing segregation drags down wealth today in African Americans. Our country is far from a place of equal opportunity and justice for all. The NAACP's priorities currently are working with economic and educational issues, but so much remains to be accomplished, both in these issues and elsewhere. <clears throat> so I ask the question again. I've been asking it of myself as I put this together. What can I do? What can, what can you do? What can we, as a congregation, as a religion, committed to our second principle, justice, equity, and compassion in human relations, what can we do? What do the spirit of love and life, life within each one of us call us to do? What does the loving face of a God who embraces all people, all people seek from us? How can we sit at the welcome table one of these days? I don't pretend to have the answers. But I... I wouldn't be a minister if I didn't offer a few thoughts. <laughs> it may be obvious, and maybe it seems too trivial to, to mention, but I think getting to know each other, I mean consciously making an effort to get to know each other, is an important foundation. We might begin at the Martin Luther King Day March tomorrow, and I, I hope that I see a lot of you there. But it's hardly enough one day a year like going to homeless shelters at Christmas. It's good, but it's not enough. Having spent so much of my civil rights work for the last 25 years on seeking equality, justice, and compassion for the LGBT community, I've developed close relationships with gays and lesbians. I have cried when I heard their stories. And those tears have led me to go door to door to get out the vote and go to Richmond and Annapolis to try to change votes, change hearts. But it's hard to be passionate about justice in the abstract. When I hear about someone discriminating against or threatening someone, 
I love, someone I know, someone I have learned to feel is just like me, however, that is when I act. And so I think it begins with getting to know each other so that we can see and hear the stories. But it can't end there. It must end with action for justice in ways both small and big. From reporting racist comments online, I just uh, my heart breaks when I think of that lovely high school student whose story was in the paper and then followed by gratuitous comments. To changing our own behavior, to, stand, uh, to recognizing our own behavior, to standing up for someone we see being harassed, to marching, yes, even in 2015, and voting and giving money, pushing the arc of justice, the arc of the universe toward justice, is a lifelong calling. We worship in this beautiful space, built by hand by former slaves. We have an obligation to them and to their grandchildren. Alone, our light can go out, but together our little lights glow, giving warmth and light to the hurting world. I would like you to take out the light you received earlier today. And turn it on. Such a little cheap thing. Won't last forever. If you're like John and me, you'll probably lose it by tomorrow. And right now it's daylight. We can hardly see them. Yet, these lights remain a tangible reminder of our commitment to becoming people who see our neighbors, to hear our neighbors in all their beauty, who provide them warmth because we ourselves are filled with love and light. I encourage you to take this candle, this little candle home, put it in your purse, put it in your car, take it with you. Or maybe put it on your end table at home, or if you have a little space where you read a morning meditation or say a prayer, put it on your table. Let it remind you that we are the bringers of light everywhere we go. May we all, all, all sit at the welcome table one of these days. Please join me in 